Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Uh, is that we're going to be starting to unpack some of the common cultural narratives of relationships, marriage, dating, singleness, sex, all everything that goes along with that, and begin to start asking, well, what does the Lord have to say about that? And, um, and so one of, the, one of the things that has come up is there is this obsession uh, that we have as a, as a culture that there is this perfect one, your soulmate, right? Finding the love of your life. Uh, and it's not just our culture. I, I had a conversation or overheard a conversation this week uh, with my girls. Uh, my six-year-old and my eight-year-old are in the back of the van and we're driving into like my horror. I hear them talking about marriage, about their own marriages. And I was like, uh, what? And, they, and I, they begin to start telling me their plans of who they're going to marry when they're going to marry them, and they have already picked out which guys they are going to be. Uh, our eight-year-old is like the planner, and she's like, oh, I know who I'm going to marry. I'm going to be married at the age of 19, and I'll have my first kid at 20. I was like, oh, dear Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I was ready to hear that, that, that just, you know, early Wednesday morning on my way to elementary school. And my, our, our six-year-old just loves love. Like, she's just like oh, I'm going to marry so-and-so. And then like, he's always like, I thought it was this. And she's like, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to marry. Like, I'm like, no. And like, there's this, there is this thing of like, oh, I can't wait to find the one. And what's interesting about that is although as I look at my own marriage and I see God's fingerprints all over it, that God would put us together, I also understand that biblically, there's not a lot of evidence that somehow there is, out of the billions of people in the world, there's only one person that God has made, handmade for you. And if you don't find that person, then you're kind of messed up. And it just puts a ton of like, anxious pressure on people. Like, oh, man, what if I picked the wrong person? Those of you who are married, like, did I make the wrong decision? You see, the Bible doesn't talk about finding the love of your life. It talks mostly um, about finding the life or the source of your love. It's finding this new well, this new place where you draw love from so that whoever God brings to your life, whoever you choose, whoever you end up being around, whether that's in a relation or a romantic setting or whether that's just the family of origin you come from, your coworker, whatever relationship you just end up being with, God is more interested in sourcing that love and bringing life into that love so that you can love them in such a way that Jesus loved the church. And so that's what we're going to be spending and reorienting ourselves around over the next few weeks is how do we love like that? How do we rethink about love? How do we rethink about relationships? And we're just a couple of just um, kind of things to preface before we dive into this series that I just want you guys to know. Number one is that this is not a series uh, just for married people, just for people who are dating, uh, people who will have a desire to be romantically involved. This is for people who are around people. This hopefully will uh, reach every sort of gamut of life. At the same time, we will talk about specifics like marriage and singleness and dating and, and all these different things. And my hope is that whether that's the season of life you're in or not, 
is that we would allow the Lord to paint a new picture and a new paradigm for relationships in general. Because um, even as someone who's taught on this, I've written on this, I am consistently having the Lord and the scriptures continue to refine how I think about relationships. So I've never taught through this series before. This is going to be brand new for me. Uh, but there is so much truth in here that just keeps uh, refining me and challenging me as we do that. Uh, number two, just things I want to kind of preface this with is whenever we talk about relationships, it's kind of a daunting task uh, because when we talk about parenting, there are people in the room who have uh, struggled with inf- or infertility. When we talk about marriage, there's people who've longed to be married. There's been people who've been divorced. And so, um, and then extreme versions of that, when we talk about relationships, there's people who've experienced the pain of abuse and the toxicity of when there's, been, when there's been hurt involved in these relationships. And I just wanted to say, these things that we're going to be covering are true, p- biblical, general principles for relationships, but there are extreme cases that it's dangerous for you to apply them in, in, in those settings. And you need to understand, if you are in a and if you are in a dangerous relationship, your first move is not to figure out how to love them better, it's to get to safety. Does that make sense? So I just want to say that in the very beginning, um, that there are, there are certain situations that I would say this content may not be your first step. Um, that healing, counseling, uh, leaving, there might be other steps that you'd want to take first before these things can be, begin to be applied. Um, so just, just again, a couple of prefaces, and then I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and then we will dive into tonight's teaching. Uh, before we do, Mike, are you in the back? Can, we, can I lower my mic just a little bit? I'm going to get excited here in just a minute. Don't want to scare people. Um, awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you that you are here and that you're with us. Lord, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. God, we know that everyone in this room deals in a relational context every day. And chances are, some of those relationships are hard and sometimes even hurtful. And Lord, we're asking that you would begin to reorient how we think about the people in our lives so that we can love them with a new source, a new life, a new... um, Ability, God, that would come from you, Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we're just ready now to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. We start in verse 7. This, I believe, is kind of a foundational verse for us as we understand finding the life of your love. 1 John chapter 4 says this Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, so there it is. What, what's the life of our love? The life of our love is that we have been loved first, and we have been loved in a specific way, and that love that was given to us out of intentionality and out of sacrifice was not only given to us for salvation, it was given to us as an example 
Love other people like this. This is the life of our love, is when we look at Jesus, the gift of the Father giving his son as a sacrifice for us, for our redemption, that is not just something we look upon in a spiritual sense. That's a relational model for us. That's something we can look at and say, okay, how does this apply to the relationships around me? And so just three things we're going to cover tonight. Uh, the title of tonight's sermon is called The Greatness of Love. And number one, we're going to be talking about the greatest enemy of love. Number two, we'll talk about the greatest example of love. And lastly, we'll talk about the greatest empowerment of love. Now, before we can talk about the greatest enemy of love, I just want to give us some definition because, again, the idea of love can be translated a hundred different ways in our society. Throughout the Bible, what we see love kind of fleshed out as, some of my favorite definitions are the, um, the disadvantaging of oneself for the advantage of another, right? It would be the, the giving up of yourself for the ultimate benefit of another soul. It'd be laying down your life for a friend, as the Bible puts it. It is this sacrificial action, not this involuntary emotion, but this active participating of giving of oneself so that someone else may experience a fuller life, a greater experience. And so if we define love like that, as we see again and again in the Bible, whether it's the Hebrew word hesed, the Greek word agape, all of those encompass these ideas, then we can identify, that's how we define love, we can identify that it's greatest enemy. If, if love is the giving of oneself, then the greatest enemy of love is self-centeredness. And that's kind of our first point tonight, is that the thing that can rob love of its power and its dignity faster than anything else is when you become the center of your own universe, when egocentricity, when, um, when we become self-centered in, in our obsession. And then this, again, it sounds kind of like, well, that's extreme, but the reality is this is all of us. This is how we're all wired. And I don't have to, when my children were born, um, they came hardwired to think about themselves more than anyone else. And so I don't have to teach them to be self-giving and selfless. I'm sorry, to be, I don't have to teach them to be selfish. They already are. I have to teach them to share. I have to try and convince them. It's a good idea for you to give your toy to your cousin, okay? Um, because that's not hardwired into their brain. And when they do, we celebrate it because there's something in us that just bends inward. And this is what we see in the Genesis story when the very first God-given beautiful relationships of God, Adam, and Eve in the garden paradise is disrupted by sin, the very first thing we see is self-centeredness. So after the serpent is tempted, Eve and Adam, and they take the fruit, verse 7 in chapter 3 of Genesis says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized what? They were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. How interesting that the very first epiphany that happens after the very first sin is they become increasingly aware of their own shame, right? Their own vulnerability, their, their own exposure. We immediately see for the very first time self-centeredness. Oh, this isn't good. And so they immediately start to cover it. Listen how the story plays out. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Well, here we have the, our first thing is self-preservation. Oh, my, man, I got to hide. I got I'm naked, there's something wrong, I'm ashamed, now I need to go hide. And you begin, again, self-centeredness is beginning to just rampantly take place in the story where before it wasn't existing. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man said, the woman you put here with me, she, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. So again, now he's blame shifting. Now he's just saying, hey, kill her, not me. Right, self-centeredness, like, hey, you know who you should really be mad at, God? This one over here. <laughs> she really messed up. And then Eve does the same thing, where she just bounces it to the serpent. And, and in the middle of this just selfish, self-preservation, self-centered fest, we see these, these layouts of these curses. And in the middle of it, there's this one given to the woman that says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Well, that word desire is the same word that Cain has to kill Abel. And so the Hebrew here, don't think of it as like, he's, you're gonna long for your husband, gotcha. No, no, you're gonna long to rule over him, to manipulate him, to control him, but your husband will rule over you. So all of a sudden you have this introduction that sin has brought, not the lowering of oneself, which is the idea of submission, but the placing yourself above another, which has the idea of dominance. And this is what we're introduced to in the very beginning scriptures of the, um, very beginning pages of the scriptures, is this introduction that at the core of sin is self. I can't think of very many marital problems that I've counseled or Jen and I have sat with that does not somehow trace back to selfishness. Um, I can't ever imagine someone getting divorced and just thinking like, oh, they're so selfless. It bothers me. You just give and give and give and give and give and give. No, there, there is this moment where people give up because there's so much selfishness in their opinion they can't take it anymore. But here's what's interesting about being self-centered. Tim Keller says it like this. Self-centeredness makes us blind to our own selfishness and hypersensitive to others' selfishness. Man, this is maybe one of the most true statements I've seen. Have you guys ever noticed, if you've been in a fight with a friend, a sibling, your spouse, and you are the leading expert on how selfish they are? Like, oh, let me tell you. Oh, really? Really? Is that, oh, is that what you said? Let me tell you what you were actually thinking when you said that. And we can, we can paint up their selfishness with certain clarity. And at the same time, they're completely oblivious to it. And they're the leading expert in your selfishness. I mean, I find it fascinating when Jen and I get in an argument, which never happens. Um, it's never happened last night. Um, so we're fighting. I immediately can think of 10 things about how she's being selfish. And at the same time, she's telling me all these things that are being selfish. And here's, and here's the thing. She's actually right. And I was completely blind to them. So self-centeredness is this weird disease where it makes you blind to your own selfishness and hypersensitive to theirs. And that's a problem. Right? That we, we now are at a stalemate that we don't know what to do. I remember when we first got married, 
And um, I always tell everyone this. I thought I was a really great guy until I got married. And then I realized I had a lot of work to do. Um, when we were doing premarital counseling, our counselors said, like, hey, what are some of the roles that you guys want to do around the house? Do you guys want to split those up? And we're like, sure. And so I'm like, I'll do the laundry. I don't mind doing the laundry. And Jen's like, I'll do the dishes. I'm like, great. I hate doing the dishes. You can do the dishes. I'll do the laundry. It's going to be awesome. Look at us. Just so 2006. Um, so we, we dive into marriage, and, and life's great, right? Those first few weeks are awesome. And then I, you know, I'm just so in love with my new bride. I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to do the dishes tonight. Yeah, I, I made dinner, but I'm, I'm that great of a guy. And so I'm there, and I'm washing our two plates. <laughs> and, and as I'm doing this, I'm, I, I feel ashamed of saying this. I'm literally planning, I'm playing out in my head how she's going to respond. Oh, Ben, you're so awesome. <laughs> Can't believe you did that for me. I'm like, oh, man, she's going to just be blown away that I did the dishes. I'm like, I bet, I'm like, I bet she's going to do the laundry. Like, that's obviously her next step. And a, and a couple hours later, she walks in, and I'm just kind of like standing by like the clean kitchen, and I'm like, see this? It's pretty, I'm pretty awesome. I did your work. And nothing, right? No balloons, no parade, no thank you card, nothing. Like, she didn't even do the laundry. And I found myself with this kind of low-grade, kind of irk, kind of resentment, like, who do you think you are? Like, I just loved you. Right? I just served you. Where are you serving me back? You're so selfish. And in this moment, of, and it sounds super kind of funny and petty, in this moment, the, the Holy Spirit stuck his gracious, merciful finger into my chest and just says, nothing you did was out of love. Nothing you did was loving towards your wife. It's completely selfish. Everything you did even in your acts of service, immediately followed your planning out your own selfish gratification from it. And in that moment, I, I realized, it wasn't like, oh, I have to stop being selfish. I re- it was like I just awoken a beast that I realized I would spend the rest of my life slaying. I was like, oh man, I'm messed up. 13 years into marriage, I still fight that battle. I still fight that thing in me that, that keeps a score of, I hope you see all that I'm doing when I put little to no effort to notice everything that she does. Because self-centeredness is the core of our problem. I'm bent towards that. And God is ruthlessly trying to uproot that inside of me because he loves me and Jen and our marriage and the covenant we made so much. But if I'm not careful, that self-centeredness will not only exist, it will take root and that roots will cause them to resentment and scorekeeping and transactional love and it will deteriorate this relationship from the inside out. And so when we talk about self-centeredness, it's not just like, oh, yeah, good point, stop being selfish. No, no, we need to understand this is the greatest enemy of love there is. It's the self. It's just the worship and the obsession with self. And as long as that is prevalent in your relationships, your relationships will struggle. 
It might have good seasons where that your partner, your family member, your friend is just going over the top and they're feeding into that selfishness and it feels good and you might serve a little bit because that kind of makes you feel good. But at the end of it, if we don't deal with this great enemy of our selfishness, um, it will deal with us. It will deal with our relationships. Timothy Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this, the key to marriage, or I would say any relationship, is to see your own self-centeredness as the fundamental problem and to treat it more seriously than your spouses, friends, parents, etc. Only you have complete access and responsibility to your own selfishness. Did that burn anyone else? Man, I... I have to come to a place where I have to admit the greatest problem in my marriage is my self-centeredness. And I have to deal with it more drastically than thinking about my wife or my kids or or friends or, or family members. It has to begin there. Now, let me give a point of clarity here. Wounding is different than self-centeredness. You see, you don't have to be wounded to be self-centered. Like you said, we're born into this fleshly, inward-bent self. But wounding agitates our self-centeredness. Wounding tells us a lie that the only way to exist in life is to be self-centered because no one's going to care for you. And so those wounds over time become these walls, these rules we make that will not let anyone have access to. And we have to take care of ourselves because no one else will take care of us. And, And both of those things are closely attached, but they're dealt with differently. You see, our wounds are things God wants to heal. Our wounds are things that God wants to say, I can, I, whether that's through counseling or therapy, whether that's a supernatural touch of the Holy Spirit, or whether that's walking through those things in forgiveness. God wants to, to heal those things. But the self-centeredness, even if those wounds are healed, will always be something we have to deal with. This is, again, Paul talks about it like this. Is there's a flesh and a spirit. The word flesh means sarks, and it literally just means humanity. It is a bent in self. And when we're given the Holy Spirit, now we have something to, to wage war against that. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But here's what I find interesting about our culture's solution to self-centeredness. Our culture's solution to self-centeredness is to do more for yourself. You ever realize that? That's like the common narrative. Oh, man, man you're, you're right. You're, ha- you're doing a lot, and they're not doing enough. You know what? Go to the spa. You know, it's Okay. <laughs> Yeah, you eat that pint of ice cream. It's good, yes, more for you, more for you. You don't do enough for yourself. And it, man, doesn't that sound good? It doesn't just make you want to thank you. I'm glad someone notices. But if the problem of self-centeredness, why would we just add more self and think that that's going to solve it? It's like, oh, man, there's a fire. Quick, let's put some more gasoline on it. Like, how ridiculous is that? If self-centeredness is ruining our relationships, why would we assume that the solution is just more self-centeredness? Now, again, I, I, I'm all about, like, man, take a break. Have a Sabbath, you know? Like, go, have a, have a nice day off. Take a vacation. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about this, this belief at your core level that all I need is just more for me. 
I need more to, uh, more, I just need to buy some more things. I need you to change a little bit more. I need to do these things and I'll, then I'll be okay. But right now it's just off. I need more and more to feed this thing. And God is over here saying, let me give you a completely different answer. Rather than the problem of self being solved by more self, what if God's solution for self-centeredness was to model absolute selflessness, to give us his son, the ultimate sacrifice, so that we now have something to live from. Our love has something to have life from. First Corinth, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15 says it like this, and I love this verse. It says, and he died for all. And those who live should no longer live for themselves. Do you ever realize that he died for all so that you don't have to be selfish anymore? Do you ever connect those dots? And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Martin Luther King Jr. says it like this, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Oh, I love this. And at the same time, it just kind of stings a little bit because I know it's true. I know when I know when I get home, I will have a beautiful, incredible family that will be filled with their own things, me bringing in my own things, and we will be back to square one, and I will have a choice to make. Will I lean into my self-centeredness, or will I lean into the gospel? Which goes to our second point here. If the greatest enemy of love is self-centeredness, the greatest example of love is the cross. Hands down. It's the gospel. The good news of Jesus, the, the greatest example we have of love. Is we can look to 2,000 years ago, a tree on Golgotha. And if you're ever wondering what does love look like, that's, that's where we go. And why, why is this so pivotal is because there's this thing that psychologists call love economics. And love economics is this thing that's similar to normal economics. Like I can be generous, I can spend money based on how much money I have in my account. Based on how much is in the bank. Well, we do this with love as well. We only can give as much love as we have in our bank. Now, that's fine if you have a lot to give. The problem is, over time, over months, over years, based on how that person is and how you relate with them, those, that account can become depleted. And that person over here is like, man, I really need you to love me. And you look at your account and you're like, man, I'm at like 70%. So I'm going to love you with 70%. And that person over here is like, well, if you're only loving me at 70%, then I'm only going to love you back in response to that at 70%. But that 70% kind of feels more like 60% because they're looking for something higher. And all of a sudden, you find after years, friendships, marriages, family members, people that they've lived with and loved with all of their heart, looking at each other saying, I have nothing left to give. Because they may have found the love of their life, but they never found the life of their love. 
They never found something else to fill that account. They never found another source, another well to draw from to be able to pour love into that person God has given them to love. And this is where the cross comes into play. The cross is for us not just an event for our own personal salvation. It is an invitation that this was for us. This is for us to wake up and realize that at our worst, when we looked at God and said, I have nothing to give you, there's nothing in me that's good or right or pure. A matter of fact, screw you. I'm going to be rebellious. I'm going to walk my own way. I'm going to serve self rather than you. God looked across that same table and looked at us and said, fine, I will give you everything I have. No strings attached. It's all yours. And this is what we find in Romans 5, 6 through 8. And he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... We had nothing to give. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Listen to this, church. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has a different sort of economy. There's a source that he draws from within himself, the all-sustaining one, that is able to love us when we have nothing to give him back. Did you ever realize just at the right time was not when we were receptive, it's when we were sinners. Just at the right time was not when we were able, it's when we were powerless. Just at the right time is when you have nothing to give, that's when I showed up. That's when the cross came into play. And if we do not recognize our need for the cross and our need for, the sal- for salvation, then we will never have access to that unlimited account of love. And let me, let me explain it like this. The cross will never mean much to you if you never have a proper view of your own selfishness. The Bible calls it sin. See, all, all sin is is choosing self over God or choosing self over people. And that sin, that selfishness has offended not only the people around us, but God himself. And in that moment of offense to God, we need to have a very serious conversation tonight. It's It's not to be a downer, but it's for us to realize that we are responsible, just as responsible as the Roman guard and the Jewish high priest. We are just as responsible for putting Jesus up on that cross because if you do not have a high view of sin, you will not have a high view of the cross. John Stott, who is one of my favorite authors on the cross, says this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. You see, if we, if we don't see ourselves as the powerless, as the sinner, as in desperate need of salvation, then we lose sight of the vivid display of God's love. But it's when we, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, sees God high and lifted up, and his response is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. That, that's, that's where it begins. Now, here's the great news. That's not where it ends. Where it ends, a small example of this is we find in a prayer that Jesus prays on the cross. See, I want, I want you to imagine that not only are you observing the cross, I want you to imagine you have put Jesus up on that cross, which we all have. And as Jesus stands there on this cross, 
is reaming from pain, suffocating to death. He cries out this prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Aren't you thankful that as Jesus laid on the cross, his prayer was not punish them, for they know exactly what they're doing. The reason I bring up that that hypothetical prayer is oftentimes that's the prayer or at least the thought we have towards those who've hurt us, isn't it? God punished them. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing when they hurt me like that. Man, I hope this happens, or I hope they, they aren't successful, or I hope they realize how much they hurt me. And, we, and underneath our breath and at the core of our spirit, we say something more like punish them. They know exactly what they're doing, but it's at the cross. It's at the cross, the one we put him on. And he doesn't pray that prayer. He looks and he says, Father, forgive Benji. He didn't know what he was doing. that every time if I just take a hard look at the cross, it moves me at an emotional level. And, and I want it to. I need it to. It must move me at a core level because if it does, if the cross captures my heart and my attention, then I have no choice but to echo this prayer towards my wife. Father, forgive her. She didn't know what she was doing. To echo it to my children. They, God, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing when they were being rebellious and hurtful when they said those words. Your parents, your, your friends, your coworker, that boss, whoever that person is, when we are completely overwhelmed by the grace of God displayed on the cross, it begins to seep into every other relationship. It has to. You see, I, I'm not a great husband apart from Christ. One of my daily rituals that I've been doing for years, and by daily, it's not, it's not every kind of day kind of thing, but on a pretty regular basis, when I'm taking my shower in the morning, I think, Lord, and I just start confessing my sins, and I say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I have been selfish. I'm sorry that I have rebelled against you. I'm sorry that I've treated people this way. I'm sorry uh, for that I have thought this way. I've said these words. And in that moment, I just imagine the cross and I imagine the loving hands of my Father saying, come. And in that moment, I begin to thank God and I thank him and say, Lord, thank you that you did not treat me as my sins deserved. And here comes the, the relational part. Help me not treat my wife the way her sins deserve. Help me not treat my children the way their sins deserve. Help me not to treat my neighbors out of my own inability. Would I love the people around me the same manner in which you loved me? And I, I just want to be very honest. I don't do this perfectly. This, does, this isn't some magic solution where all of a sudden you're just like you know, Mother Teresa the second or something like this, Okay. This is a lifelong practice of continuing to go back to the cross as the greatest example of love the world has ever seen and saying, God, let that change me. Let that change how I treat my wife. 
Let that change how I treat my parents. Let that change how I treat my friends. Specifically when they hurt me. Specifically when I look at my, my, my love economic account and I'm like, I don't have much to give. But Jesus does. And you might be sitting here tonight and you're like, man, that sounds really risky. You, you're, you're asking me just to love people. This like overwhelming amount of love, even if they hurt me, even if they, they don't ever say thank you, even if they don't love me back in the same way, do you realize how risky that is? And I would challenge you to not only survey the risk of loving like that, but would you survey the risk of choosing not to love? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says like this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So my, my friends, what I, what I bring to you tonight um, it's not easy, it's not glamorous, it's messy, and it's hard, and sometimes painful, just like the cross was. But when we choose, because of our own hurt and because of our own selfishness, to close our heart off, what happens is that heart begins to change for the worse. And the invitation tonight that God is extending to us is, would, would you love again? There's, there's a book by Jensen Franklin, and the, the, the title of it's brilliant. It says, love, love like you've never been hurt. The only way that's even possible is we come back to the cross. And we let that shape how we love. And, and, and this is my hope. My hope is that you would have this epiphany of like, I feel more, a, a truer sense of joy and fulfillment when I just give and I just love and I'm not in the back of my mind keeping a tally or hoping that's true. I just love the way that Jesus loved. I remember last, um, not my, my previous birthday, but the year before that, I was really tired um, and felt like I had been doing a lot for the church, for my family. And, and I was looking, it sounds weird because I'm kind of getting up there in age where people don't celebrate birthdays. I was just looking forward to my birthday because I was like, oh, just a day to be served. Just to be loved, cared for. And I built up this narrative in my mind. I'm like, oh, this is going to be such a good birthday. And, and, and long story short, I went to bed that night more depressed than I had been all year long because I had become convinced that all I needed was more self. And I learned my lesson, and this year I just decided, I'm like, forget that. 
like my birthday is not only like every other day. It's a day that I want to love people even more. I want to serve people anymore, even more. So I spent all day cooking food for other people. I, I just literally just, I was just like, I'm just going to give. And I just want to tell you, um, it was one of the best birthdays I've ever had. And I'm just, I'm just starting to realize, you know, like 15 years into ministry, you know, 13 years into ministry, I'm just starting to realize, I'm like, man, maybe Jesus is up to something here. Maybe we're just supposed to love people the way Jesus loved us, and somehow that is their truest sense of becoming alive that we could ever experience. I'm gonna invite Brandon to come up. I'm gonna share our last, last point, which is critical. Is the, it's not enough just to recognize the greatest enemy of love and to recognize the greatest example of love because we need the greatest empowerment to love. Because it's not just enough like, wow, got it, heard a sermon. I'm like, you know, Mr. Love now. Like, I'm just gonna go and I'm gonna be totally selfless and giving. It's not, it doesn't quite work like that uh, because you'll fail. And like I mentioned, uh, this, is, this is something I'm trying to live out not perfectly, and I fail all the time. So what I need to recognize again and again and again is not only the truth of the gospel, but the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live out the gospel. And if I don't have the Holy Spirit empowering me to love, it's all that's left for me is, is me, and that's not enough. I need the Holy Spirit to empower me. This is why in Galatians 5.22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Did you notice that even though it continues to talk about joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, and all these different things, it does not say fruits, it just says fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and most scholars would say that the, the fruit of the Spirit is, is love, period, and everything else is, is a definition of what love looks like. So if you, if you want to love better, you, you don't need to just do better, do more, be more willing. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to come and fill you and empower you in such a way that all of a sudden love is just hanging off the branches of your life. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news? You, get, you don't need to leave here depressed like, oh, I suck at loving, and now I know I suck at loving. I gotta do better. No, let's leave here filled with the Holy Spirit that he would empower us to love. Tim Keller, again from his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says, to have a marriage or any relationship that sings, don't you love that line? To have a relationship that sings requires a spirit-empowered ability to serve, to take yourself out of the center and put others' needs in front of your own. This next line is maybe one of my favorites of the whole night. Listen to this. The spirit's work of making the gospel real to our heart weakens the self-centeredness in the soul. I'm gonna read that one more time because I want this to sink in. The Spirit's work of making the gospel real to our heart weakens the self-centeredness in the soul. It is impossible to make major headway against self-centeredness and to move into a stance of service without some kind of supernatural help. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you not only give us an example to live by, but the power and the ability to live it out, not under our own strength, but through the Holy Spirit. And again, I'm glad you're here tonight because everything we talk about from this point will build upon this. 
is at the end of these few weeks that we would be a church that has begun the process of uprooting our self-centeredness, a church that has become fixed on the gospel, fixed on the cross, and a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to love one another, our spouses and friends and family and co-workers and neighbors. Would you bow your heads with me? Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. 